Hello, Rebels. You're listening to a free audio-only recording of my show, The Gun Show. My guest tonight is independent Winnipeg journalist Marty Gold with federal election analysis and so much more. If you like listening to this podcast, then you will love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to premium content. That's what we call our long-form TV-style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to watching my weekly show as well as other great TV style shows too, like Ezra's Nightly, Ezra Levant Show, and David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup. It's only eight bucks a month to subscribe or you can subscribe annually and get two months free. And just for our podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new premium membership by using the coupon code podcast. When you subscribe, just go to the rebel.media slash shows to become a member and please leave a five-star review on this podcast and subscribe in itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts those reviews are a great way to support the rebel without ever having to spend a dime and now please enjoy this free audio only version of my show Justin Trudeau blames us all for his little racism problem in an appearance in Winnipeg. Now, what was it like to stand in the front row of one of the worst days of Justin Trudeau's life? We'll find out today. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. something absolutely unacceptable to do uh, and you know, I, I appreciate calling it makeup but it was blackface uh, and that is just not right it is something that uh, people who live with the kind of discrimination uh, that far too many people do because of the color of their skin uh, or their history or their origins or their language or their religion uh, face on a regular basis and uh, I didn't see that from the layers of privilege that I have. Uh, and for that, I am deeply sorry. That, friends, is a clip from Justin Trudeau's never-ending apology tour as more and more and, I guess, more images of him performing blackface come out requiring more and more and, well, more explanations and more and more and more excuses. Apparently, the latest excuse for dressing up in blackface so many times he can't even keep track anymore is that Justin Trudeau was just too rich to know better and just too dumb to care, if I'm paraphrasing him correctly, and I'm pretty sure I am. Now, that latest groveling session where Trudeau claims to be taking responsibility for his actions, but at the same time is also facing absolutely no real consequences for his atrocious behavior, took place in Winnipeg. Now, if you haven't seen, our friend Andrew Lawton from the True North Center has been prohibited from going on the liberal media bus by the liberal party. You see, Andrew's just not liberal approved. So Andrew's currently chasing Justin Trudeau and his gaggle of sycophantic journalists, journalists who haven't uttered a word in defense of Andrew's right to report, all across the country. There are no skeptical journalists in the media bus. So my guest tonight, actually at a front row seat to that Winnipeg sob fest. And I wanted to have him on the show because he's one of the few non-liberal approved journalists to get front row access to Trudeau at all 
in this election campaign. So joining me tonight to discuss what it was like to have delicious courtside seats for one of the worst days of Justin Trudeau's life, the atrocious CBC coverage during the recent Manitoba election, and the growing scourge of anti-Semitism allowed to fester in Canada's progressive parties is independent journalist Marty Gold from the J.ca in an interview we recorded yesterday afternoon. to talk about the federal election, Justin Trudeau's whistle-stop visit to his town, and a whole host of other issues happening in the federal election, and a little bit about the Israeli election, because I'm not sure anybody really understands it, is independent Winnipeg-based journalist Marty Gold. Hey, Marty, thanks for joining me. Um, Thanks for having me again, Sheila. Let's start off with um, the Manitoba election. That's come and went. I think your uh, election predictions were pretty close, um, but CBC was pretty darn terrible um, during that election campaign, I suppose, the way they are in every single election campaign. Uh, CBC started out, uh, like stumbled out of the gate by, as we uh, discussed in my previous appearance, by running with a poll without taking two seconds to actually look at the at anything beyond the so-called polling results, uh, there was no background information about the polling company at all on the website. It is an unknown player in the polling game. Uh, the reporter Bryce Hoy evidently could not wait to get it up, scoop everybody on a Friday afternoon. By Saturday morning, uh, Dougal Lamont and the Liberal Party had pointed out that, among other things, that made this poll showing the NDP and the Conservatives neck and neck at 31%, that the uh, anybody scratching the surface would realize there was deep connections between the NDP and the pollster, who then had to say, yeah, these results, I got to look at them. And two days later, the results from northern Manitoba were deemed to have been overweighted. Uh, and lo and behold, the poll results were very close to what the final result was in terms of where everybody, uh, everybody rested. I don't recall CBC ever explaining how they went with a poll that was, and this could have been a kid in grade six, could have put a poll out with a fancy website, and it, because it showed Wab Canoe in a in a horse race with uh, Brian Powell, so they would have run it. Uh, didn't see any explanation for it, didn't see any apology for it. And then after the campaign, CBC, I mean, as the, as the, the uh, votes were still being counted, really, uh, they outdid themselves by uh, proclaiming a particular MLA from the NDP as Manitoba's first elected black member of the legislature. Uh, Uzoma Azaguara is um, uh, a darling of the left-wing media in Winnipeg. She is the disciple, a disciple, of Nahani Fontaine. uh, And uh, she's got a great presence. I attended one of the town halls I attended. She was a speaker uh, on behalf of the NDP. Uh, and, and you know, she is the source of probably the best joke that came out of the end of the campaign, 
uh, where uh, on Twitter someone noted that with her election, that Brian Pallister was now the second best basketball player at the legislature. Uh, she is uh, was not only a star with the Westman around 2004, five, six, the UW, but was on Canada's national team. That was a uh, Scott Taylor, my old uh, uh, friend and uh, and colleague, said that wins Twitter today, which was uh, uh, which it did. However, what lost Twitter was the way CBC then like immediately started to portray her election. They ran a headline that she made history as the first black MLA elected to the Manitoba legislature. I, within, you know, not long, I see this and right away I'm going, what are you talking about? What about Audrey Gordon? Like, she's not the first. This isn't a race to count the ballots. Somebody being declared first is irrelevant in the annals of history. This has, it's not like which twin was born first. Yeah. It's completely irrelevant which news desk declared somebody elected before somebody else. CBC didn't give a crap. They saw the opportunity to glorify uh, Uzoma again uh, and proclaim her the first uh, elected uh, black legislator. Within 10 minutes of me tweeting, hey, that's not right, because they're all sworn in at the same time which actually will be the day that this airs on the 25th of September. So the headline was cha changed to trio of black MLAs make history by winning seats in the legislature. But even then, they couldn't help themselves. And in the story that they uh, followed that one with, where they talked about uh, uh, a Saguara, uh, a colleague, Jamie Moses, knocked off the only conservative cabinet minister to lose, Colleen Mayer, Métis, a member of the Métis Nation, uh, was Minister of, I think, Crown Services. Colleen was knocked off in St. Vital, which has been traditionally an NDP riding for the most part. It's a battleground every time. And uh, Audrey Gordon. So now the follow-up story is, let's meet our 13 rookie MLAs. And CBC leads off, of course, with their favorite basketball player. Now, I sent you the, the like, word for word what was written. And they did, uh, they wrote this up in a way where they talked about, uh, She's a nurse, a member of a women's health clinic boards. They name the place. Experience in uh, working with addictions and poverty. Uh, history as an athlete. The teams that she made. Mentors young athletes. First black, one of the first black MLAs. Uh, first black queer MLA. Because she's got to be first at something, but she can't be the first black anymore. So let's bring up something completely irrelevant. Right. Completely irrelevant to the credentials of anybody running for public office is who or what they sleep with. Uh, first black queer MLA building on previous community work with the queer people of color Winnipeg. So they've established her woke credentials out the yin yang, right? Yeah. They take three paragraphs quoting her on different matters, in particular this uh, uh, reflecting our communities. Uh, and that she founded this uh, this uh, queer uh, uh, act uh, activist group, I guess is what it's called. All right, and then they mentioned she was one of their top, uh, CBC top 40 under 40 finalists. So they put her over seven or eight different ways, four paragraphs quoting her. Now they go to Audrey Gordon, conservative that was uh, elected in uh, Southdale, pretty much adjacent to St. Vital, and Audrey's run before, uh, I think she ran provincially and federally and lost previously. And they go through her background. 
25 years experience working in the public sector, worked for the regional uh, health care, uh, uh, the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority as director of the home care pro uh, program, a master's of this, a bachelor of arts certified in counseling, served on a number of education health boards and as a volunteer at her local church. Now that doesn't have nearly the detail no. that you heard about the NDP candidate. Uh, and I guess if Audrey Gordon uh, was not heterosexually married for 33 years, but was a queer person, I guess they'd have to come up with some other way of making the NDP MLA first at black and something and something. So I went to the candidate website going, you know, that's, if, if that might be grade 12 level journalism about a, about a candidate, might be, okay, senior high. Audrey, in the first paragraph, extensive public service experience, active community volunteer, and a small business owner. Now, you would think that somebody being a business owner is significant in their entry into government, at least for people that care if their elected officials know anything about business. She's not just experienced in, uh, in the public sector. Director of Strategic Initiatives at the WHA with 15,000 clients and 4,500 staff under her direction. Successfully implemented uh, uh, projects for, uh, ranging from child care uh, to long-term care, improving the delivery of health care. Now, improving the delivery of health care, when health care was the overriding issue in this Manitoba election, you'd think this is something a journalist would go, wow, on the government benches, this is somebody who has the experience to tell Brian Pallister what it's like. Yep. Whoa, not to the CBC. Why mention actual qualifications? Now, before she got to the WHA, Audrey Gordon, special assistant to the Minister of Health, uh, assistant to the Deputy Minister of Labor and Immigration, director of the Multiculturalism Secretariat. These are major jobs inside ministerial offices with access to cabinet. This isn't just somebody who worked in the public sector for 25 years, like she was, you know, stamping yeah. application forms at a welfare office. But again, to CBC, oh, they mentioned her um, uh, BA degree, didn't mention she was Dean's List, left out one of her certificates in change management, which considering what, gov what the Palliser government is doing, is important that people understand the nature of change management. Even her volunteering was diminished. Uh, I didn't see anything, although I'm sure she's involved in her church, I didn't see anything about it in her in this candidate write-up. They might have looked at another. She volunteers with Salome Mission. Salome Mission is a, a, not only a homeless shelter, but has a, a soup kitchen. They feed people. They're in, in the midst of a capital campaign to expand to, a, I think it's 300 beds uh, for for you know interim uh, shelter for the homeless, the people who volunteer for Slow Mission, they are doing it for the glory. Believe me. Now, on the other hand, there are a lot of conservatives that volunteer there. Maybe that's why CBC is not aware of how important it is, yeah. how significant it is. You're going and naming uh, where uh, where the NDP candidate has volunteered. Uh, you know, women's health clinic. I mean, that has a certain status. Uh, particularly among the left. Why not mention Salome Mission? Yeah. The fact that she's volunteered with the Arthur Morrow Center for Peace and Justice. So to summarize, here's a candidate 
who is second in the list of meet your rookie MLAs behind their favorite, okay, who's a business owner, has worked at two ministers' offices at the highest level, del delivered programming employing 4,500 people, had one, an extra uh, uh, professional certificate, was a dean's on the dean's list for one of her degrees, uh, directed the multicultural division, which again, CBC being woke, you'd think you would make sure your audience knew that she's involved in not just multicultural affairs, but multicultural funding decisions. Volunteers at a homeless shelter in a soup kitchen, they didn't get one quote from Audrey Gordon for their profile of her. They diminished her professional and community standing as much as they possibly could. They ignored the fact that of all the rookie MLAs who were elected, 13 new faces, she is by far, by far the most likely to end up in a cabinet position and have actual impact on the lives of Manitobans. But to CBC, she's the wrong kind of black woman. Right. She's the wrong kind of rookie MLA. She's from a Commonwealth country. So she didn't face the um, adjustment, the struggle that Asaguara from Nigeria and Jamie Moses, I don't recall where he was from. I, I think it might have been Nigeria too, one of the other NDP, the, other, the third uh, black uh, uh, MLA uh, that was elected. She's the wrong kind, literally. And, and, and you know, I thought about whether to say this publicly, but I could draw no other conclusion. If she was an NDP candidate and elected by the NDP, we would have heard all sorts of things. But instead, she's from a Commonwealth country in a heterosexual marriage for 33 years. She's church-going and conservative. CBC is not going to quote her. CBC is not going to tell the public what her what her extensive. Uh, you know, she's she's more qualified for cabinet than a number of people that have been put in cabinet in this province in, in this century so far. And CBC, you know, first they they. Uh, try to uh, elevate Asaguara by saying that she's first uh, to being elected, which was not the, really the case and not relevant. And then they still find a way to push their favorite and to try to dampen down uh, somebody from the Conservative Party, Audrey Gordon. And I saw Premier Pallister greet Audrey when she came in. It was a, a, a tight race until I have a feeling it was the advance poll that put her over by 500. It was within about 100 votes. Um, up until then against the NDP candidate, a teacher who uh, uh, who I revealed had garnishment orders executed. Uh, it's amazing how if you're in a financial advisor, you can lose your license for it. Yeah. But if you're like on the public payroll, a teacher, Nanny Fontaine, for instance, in MLA, had a garnishment for not paying a, a speeding ticket. Uh, uh, Gordon beat Mishkowski, and she was very emotional when she walked into the hall because she felt she had almost let the team down and Pallister, and you saw the pictures on my on my blog. Pallister was comforting Audrey Gordon. Don't worry about it. I yep. watched him talk to her like face to face. The respect that Brian has, everybody respects Audrey Gordon, except for the CBC. You know, we saw a lot of the same things happening in the Alberta election. We had some highly qualified female conservative candidates. Uh, the one that comes to the top of my head is. Ava Kiriakos, she um, is a persecuted Christian from the Middle East, highly qualified woman, and she had made some comments about Islamic extremism, which makes sense since she herself experienced that persecution while in the Middle East, and she was 
uh, basically run out of her ability to be a candidate. And she's the perfect kind of candidate. Accomplished woman, understands the issues, um, a minority, if you care about those sorts of things. And yet, because she said the wrong things, she was excoriated by the likes of the CBC and the left, although I... I'm repeating myself by making a distinction there, and she, she wasn't didn't able to say run. The wrong thing, but she didn't say the no, wrong things. She didn't. Uh, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, Sharan, not uh, Sharansky in Israel. Uh, let's say you'd uh, emigrated, uh, not in Sharansky, had emigrated to North America and started talking about his experience uh, being persecuted uh, by the Kremlin, being, it's, you know, uh, being sentenced to a miserable, ex barely existence, soul-crushing experience in a gulag. And, and nowadays, it'd be wrong, you know, oh, don't talk about how you're persecuted as a Jew by uh, communists. Like, yeah. give me a break. Yeah. But this... This sneering, at, in particular, at Christian women, mm -hmm. um, it, it it's it undermines the it undermines the willpower of the public to entrust media outlets that engage in that, trusting them with any of our stories about what goes on in the community, yeah. because when you're sneering at somebody. Some people from certain religions, but don't do it to like everybody. If you're going to make fun of everybody because you don't think that people who are religious, you know, they undermine secular society. I don't agree with it, but it's a, you know, it's a kind of point of view. It's fair. Of, it's fair, at least. Yeah, at least it's fair. Yeah. The way I, I, I'm no champion of conservative, um, I don't mean necessarily conservative party, but yeah. conservative Christian women. I'm no champion of it. I don't go out of my way looking for it or finding candidates to you know cover or interview or anything like that. But observationally, um, if this was being done to Jewish candidates or like Jewish Orthodox candidates, and for all I know it has, and I just haven't caught it because maybe it happened to somebody in Toronto or Montreal. Yeah, Jewish community would not. Believe me, Jewish businesses would start pulling their advertising to those media outlets yep. if Orthodox women candidates started getting talked about and treated and 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 as I said, dampened down uh, their public image uh, because of this uh, sneering from the the journalistic left. Uh, I, I I feel sorry. It's not right. I feel sorry for people that have these beliefs that feel that they've got to go and then know that they're going to have to defend having them in the modern political environment. That is certainly not what Canada is about. And uh, that is not the post-national state anybody would have would have dreamed of, that people's religion can't be worn proudly as part of who they are and what they bring to public life. So let's move from the first black MLAs in Manitoba to our first black prime minister. We would yes. be remiss if we didn't talk about Justin Trudeau's blackface, blackface, blackface scandal. I think it's three times now that he's appeared yeah. in blackface. That has come public. He can't even tell us how many more times there are out there. Um, but you were on the ground in Winnipeg on his blackface apology tour. Um, day one. Day one of the apology tour. And you were there when he issued that uh, apology about how all of us need to be better because he wore blackface. What was that like? Yeah, well, I, first of all, I don't need to be better at that, about <laughs> no. subjects like that. Thank you very much. And neither do the rest of Canadians. Yeah. Um, 
It was a fluke. For, um, look, the whole thing's a fluke. He uh, was already scheduled to be in Winnipeg uh, 2 p.m. on the 4, 2 p.m. on the Thursday. I don't know what he was going to be doing in the morning. Uh, probably, you know, sticking his head into a daycare or something like that. But the major event was going to be an appearance at the Grand Mosque on Waverly in South Winnipeg. Uh, uh, Terry Duguid's riding. Um, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and of course, Jim Carr, the regional minister, yeah. would have been there, the other candidates. Uh, but this is to shore up uh, 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 Duguid, who's, uh, I don't know if it's neck and neck. I've, I've heard conflicting stories, but it's generally viewed as a, as a battle to keep that seat. It certainly was a battle for Terry to win it. Uh, and that was scrapped before, uh, before he even got off the plane. The two o'clock at the Grand Mosque was scrapped. Imagine uh, after that performance on the plane, walking into a mosque and <laughs> so it was trapped and then that morning uh, and i was already scheduled for uh, my annual physical downtown and here the notice and i think it actually might have come from you that uh, there was an event uh in downtown it, you know it's it's an area that's you know part of the greater downtown but it's its own special area the exchange district just north of downtown and I get out of the doctor's office, and uh, no bad news, thank God. Uh, and I thought, well, uh, I guess uh, I guess I can still kick these guys around for a little while still. <laughs> and I get into the car, and I'm two blocks from the street that it's on, and like eight blocks north. It's like, how do I not do this? Yeah. Cut up the lane and go, and I'm like right there. Now, the, the press release said the corner of King and Bannatyne, um, the, and this went on in the Manitoba election, too, so I'm going to make a plea here for all those of you that are organizing candidates' appearances, political appearances, for crying out loud, if something is known by a colloquial name, use it. If it's not well known by the colloquial name, some park, then use the intersection. But, like, if it had said Old Market Square, I think that more people would have actually shown up because they would have understand that he wasn't, like, inside some business or warehouse or something. I don't think they wanted more people to show up. That's they want, yeah, I think they wanted just liberal partisans, liberal insiders there, uh, because the people are inconvenient right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that day they were. So I, I yeah. scoot on down there, and uh, uh, the prime minister was fashionably late. Uh, I was able to mingle around. I talked with Marianne Mahaychuk, who was very glad to see me. I, I know that uh, this audience might find it hard to believe, but I have a lot of uh, uh, friendly relations for decades with many of the liberal MLAs, or MPs rather in Manitoba, some of them were previously MLAs, Dan Vendel was a city councillor, Kevin Lamaru, Robbie Ouellette uh, was very helpful to me in the provincial campaign actually. So I have a good relationship with the, uh, almost all of the liberal MLAs, uh, MPs rather, in Manitoba from previous, previously knowing them. And so I was able to make the rounds and uh, was introduced to David Aiken who, uh, uh, had a good laugh, I think, because of uh, my coverage of uh, the Manitoba election that was certainly, you know, not stuff that the national media would have picked up on, that local point of view. And, uh, you know, this is the first time, if I can give a bit of an overview of the scene, uh, there was a lot less people than I was expecting. I had never been around an event. I met two prime ministers previously, Mr. Turner and Mr. Critchen. Uh, when I, I think Turner was prime minister when I met him, uh, Mr. Critchen was not. He was the uh, 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 lady-in-waiting at the time. <laughs> but I've never seen that kind of security, which is to say the essentially the, the Secret Service guys. Yeah. I've never seen security up on a rooftop in Winnipeg. And, like, I'm watching people craning, and they're looking. I'm going, what are they looking at? I say, like, oh, those three guys there. And uh, 
you know, having some understanding of this kind of stuff, I scoped it out, so to speak, and they were at every exit point and entrance point, and um, I made a point of thanking a couple of them because it's thankless service yeah. uh, to do what they do and protect uh, our, our national leaders. And uh, the, the way it was set up, there was like a press row right in front, and uh, over the, the, the microphone wasn't put like right in the middle of the field, the stand. So, you know, about 40 feet, 50 feet to the left, to the other side of the microphone, Tom Broadback of the Winnipeg Free Press, the columnist, he hits up that position. And I take a look, I'm staring right at Tom, the microphone's like right between us. I realize nobody's actually standing here at the three o'clock position and I'm 10 feet from the microphone. So I'm not moving. Uh, so I spoke with some of the people around me. This is how I ascertained that uh, there was about 35 at least Red River College journalism students there, as well as uh, about another 70 or so, because I turned to these kids behind me who were like talking about, oh, if I stand over here. And so obviously mm -hmm. James Turner's journalism students, uh, and they were quite shocked that I knew James. And the first time I met him was at a crime scene looking for, you know, any evidence the cops might have missed, blood splatters or whatever. And uh, I asked them, how many people here do you know? And they told, oh, uh, about 100. Well, okay, and take off 100 media and the various liberals. And there was maybe 100 non, non-affiliated, disinterested, so to speak, parties um, that were there. The prime minister walked up fashionably late. Uh, he was, you know, it was, aside from the day Pierre died or, or maybe the funeral, this, is, this was the worst day of his life. I, I have no doubt about that. Um, it took about three or four remarks in before finally, uh, when he said that he was asking for forgiveness, then he got a burst of applause. It was small, it was light, and because I was so close to the murderer's row of, <laughs> of uh, uh, MPs uh, standing you know, 20 feet behind him, uh, audibly I could pick up where the applause was coming from. There's maybe 40 liberals in that crowd. There was no true mania going on whatsoever. Uh, David Aiken asked the most uh, penetrating question. I mean, Larry Cush, the free press, was, I think, up second. Maybe he was first or second in Canadian press, and they tried. But when Aiken pointed out that the job of prime minister wasn't invented for you to work out your issues, yeah. and Trudeau just obviously has never considered for a minute stepping down. He's never considered for a minute the best interests of the party. Yeah. He's never considered for a minute the impression he has now made as our leader on the international stage uh, by his, uh, n nobody cares about what he did in high school uh, in, this, in this matter. It is perhaps a reflection on his parents, but as it was pointed out to me, it's probably a reflection on his nanny. Because who knows who was taking care of him you know, at Buff School in Montreal when he was in grade 12. Uh, 1990, dressing up for a sketch, singing, I don't expect him to have known better. Uh, it is more a reflection on his parents. Notably, when he was asked whether his father knew, he sidestepped that question for about three minutes. And no matter how often the me media in Winnipeg said, well, he's asked about what his father Pierre would have said, and they go right to the clip, leaving out his three minutes of baffle gab. And the fact is, he didn't really answer the question. It is, I think, a, an interesting question whether his parents knew that he had a habit of dressing up in blackface to be the life of the party. But what it, him doing it at the age of 29, 
demonstrated a a real gap in his judgment. And uh, to have not talked about it all these years and for not to come out in candidate vetting, that is what I think has really irked a lot of people, that the Liberals jump all over anything about any other candidate from any other party. But when it comes to their own and their own leader, nah, not so fast. Um, Brittany Hobson, I want to mention Brittany Hobson of APTN, who, as she put it, I want to change gears for a minute. I've never seen Brittany before, never met her. But I have some friends over at APTN. And she, uh, there were some people who were angry with her because she deviated from the blackface issue and started asking about teen suicides and what uh, the report that had just come out and what his government was going to do about it. And what, and of course, it's all our fault, of course. Uh, he didn't really have anything substantive to say, but she pressed him on it. And if there was one group besides liberals or Red River College students who was well represented at this gathering of about 300 people in downtown Winnipeg, it was people of Aboriginal descent and appearance. And uh, that meant something to them. Yeah. You could see visibly that their issue was brought up. It went back to the blackface business uh, the only heckling, you know, it shows you how polite Winnipeg is. <laughs> there was, if if Andrew Shear had come to Winnipeg to, and had to deal with a similar scandal, those, you know, Antifa, all sorts of protest groups, banging pots and pans, that demonstration uh, culture would have been out in full force harassing Prime Minister Shear. But when it's Prime Minister Trudeau, it was as polite and totally Winnipeg as could be. When he left, he started getting the gears as he was walking out from Aboriginal activists, about 20 or 30 of them. And it was about, you know, observe the treaties and this and that. I, in watching it, uh, his fielding the questions, uh, he, was, he ended up face-to-face -face with me, which shocked me because when it was over, and, you know, I kind of missed, missed out the opportunity to crack the joke in my blog post about it. He came to his right, like about, say, four feet, five feet in front of me, um, walking a line towards, I couldn't figure out, but it was, there was a picnic bench in the park. Uh, and he was looking for some guy in particular who I assumed, I only got a glimpse of him. He looked like an older Aboriginal guy, and he's calling out his name. So here's the Prime Minister going, Romeo! And I completely oh, missed the Shakespearean so joke. <laughs> I, I, and to greet him, and then he makes as he turns to his right, he's going to make his way out of the, um, you know, the crowd dive. And as he makes his way out, I, he's like right beside me. I take a picture of him shaking hands with whoever this dame was. I think it might have been one of the Red River College students. And then I'm face to face with him, like he's he's hunched over. So it's no snows. I mean, it's like palace are only different. Yeah. And I looked at this guy, and um, he's aged visibly, visibly compared to the boy wonder that everybody got behind. Uh, I, I didn't really want to do anything that was going to startle him or, or cause a reaction because uh, that wasn't the day for it, considering how many, uh, uh, you know, we used to call them hired goons uh, were around. Mm -hmm. So uh, he looks me straight in the eyes. It's nice to meet you. Well, pleasure to meet you too. And that was that. I, you know, I, I could have played journalist at that moment, but 
Uh, I didn't think that was really a good idea. Uh, at that moment, he wants to leave. Let's see what happens in the aftermath. I talked with people afterwards, some of the MPs. With the, I spoke with Tom Broadback of the Free Press, a few other journalists, and with a lot of liberal staffers who were just clinging to hope that this wasn't a big deal, that he was able to explain it. As we saw that, you know, that wasn't going to work, as illustrated by Thornhill, by a debate or a town hall in Thornhill, uh, I think it was actually that same day, the 19th, that evening. Um, I, I don't think that, I don't think it, it worked. What he did in Winnipeg worked. I think that it's been proven that it didn't work. Yep. Uh, and uh, I repeat what I've said a number of times. I feel sorry for my friends that are affiliated with the Liberal Party that are good people that continue to have to get, continue to get buried by corru liberal corruption and liberal nonsense. And, and increasingly a leader who just very apparently uh, is, sees himself as special and doesn't realize when special stops and uh, not being more special than the rest of us begins. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's some sense that this is his hereditary role. Like, it, like the prime ministership yeah. is... Um, it's like Born being in the it. royal family, that he's inherited it, he's entitled to it, and by God, he's going to hang on to it. But the longer he hangs on to it, the more, you know, the more it appears to be selfish that he will maybe, you know, from my lips to God's ears, destroy the Liberal Party on the way out the door um, because he refuses to relinquish power when, I mean, he really has... Whether or not the Liberal Party wants to believe in, whether or not Canadian voters are going to reflect that, I think that Justin Trudeau has ultimately damaged our um, reputation on an international scale and our ability to negotiate and go to meetings. Like, imagine going to the G7 now or sitting down with, I don't know, the Sultan of Brunei now um, and representing Canada in any sort of reasonable way. I think that ship has long since sailed. And no, now I agree with you. He's, he's, uh, uh, he, I, I don't measure qualifications by IQ. <laughs> and IQ can be a deceptive measure. Yeah. But he is not cut of a serious cloth or serious enough cloth to be in a position of representing our country in in serious matters of economics of international security he just doesn't make it i, I referenced thornhill there was a yep. a, a town hall put on by bene brith yes. uh, that night and uh, uh peter kent the conservative incumbent uh he went right at them uh, uh, at this issue, he uh, brought up how a liberal candidate, thanks to B'nai B'rith's research, had just been turfed. Uh, the liberal candidate, Gary Gladstone, who I surmise is Jewish, uh, he said he accepted Trudeau's apology uh, and said actions speak louder than words, which, of course, that just boomerangs back on uh, nobody. The blackface incident had nothing to do with words. It had to do with actions. So that really doesn't bail Justin out on that. Um, uh, the Green, I want to mention one other thing in, yes. in Thornhill, then we'll look at, at other uh, issues uh, relating to the federal election. The Green Party candidate is Josh, Josh Rackless. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with him. He's a Toronto guy uh, and uh, uh, evidently Jewish. Uh, he's running for the Green Party in Thornhill and he head on discussed the 
problem that the Green Party has when it comes to Israel and Jewish people. My party is wrong for voting for BDS. I want to change that. That is probably the single bravest statement any candidate for parliament has made thus far. And it actually, to her credit, proves what Elizabeth May said uh, initially when it came to, to the party not having a position on abortion legislation or whatever, that members are free to bring forward policy for debate. And this is, and I discussed this with a Green candidate here in Manitoba, not a federal and a provincial one, that why are people complaining that a party's saying it's open to discussing things, that, that every vote isn't whipped, that maybe there should be some discussion about, uh, uh, not to beat the drum, but Canada not having a, a poor, uh, 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 any laws pertaining to, uh, to last semester abortions, we're an outlier yeah. in this world. And, and that is something that needs to be genuinely discussed and 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 yep. and and evaluated. And here's a guy where, like, you, can you imagine the Green Party being uh, saying BDS is wrong? It's like touching the third rail. And Josh Rackless, to his credit, demonstrated that for all the, the wackiness around Green Party candidates and, the, and their policies, as a political party where a candidate knows they can say, I think my party's wrong, I'm going to ask my party to change? Holy crap. That, to me, is really impressive. Uh, how big it went over in Thornhill, I'm not sure, but I thought it was notable enough that it, it should be um, mentioned. Well, could, could he have said anything other than that at a benign debate? I suppose. There's plenty, there's plenty of left-wing Jews That's that true try to... Split hairs. Oh, BDS is, is is only about policy, and it's and then they ignore the fact that it's enforced, as Joe Oliver has pointed out, it's enforced against uh, not just disputed territories, but anything comes out of Israel. It's not just uh, you know a question of olive oil or or or, uh, or uh, uh, cookies or or, or something <laughs> or soda stream. It involves uh, uh, science, science, academia, yeah. uh, arts. So. He could have tried to split hairs, and very bravely, that young man did not. Ultimately, in looking for the Jewish vote, the Trudeau government in trying to get reelected, there's only that I can tell. I may have missed something, but it seems to me the most Jews, the most significant thing that they've done was not something that was really well accepted by Jews in Canada and by a lot of other people, which was restore funding to uh, the United Nations uh, Relief Organization, to UNRWA, which has textbooks that, uh, that are among the most vile that in, their, yeah. in their refugee schools about Jews and about Israel. Uh, I, the Harper government put a stop to funding that organization, and the Trudeau government restored funding to it, uh, uh, which is preposterous, because it calls for the elimination of the state of Israel, and here's... Uh, uh, the Liberal Party saying, well, we believe in a two-state solution, but we'll fund organizations, including from the United Nations, that don't believe in a two-state solution. Yeah, go figure. Well, I know, going back to the Green Party just for a second, um, they are, I suppose you do make a good point, they are open-minded, they are allowing debate on certain issues, but on the other hand, it feels as though sometimes they are so open-minded that their brains have rolled right out. Uh, they're running that Green Party candidate, I think she's in, her name escapes me, but she's in Andrew Shear's riding in Saskatchewan, and she called Israel 
The state of Israel is like a serial rapist, she said. I mean, and we know that, uh, oh, again, another name escaping me, a Green Party candidate, perennial candidate here in Alberta, I think it was in West Yellowhead, ran repeatedly for the Green Party. She's currently in prison in Germany for Holocaust denial. <laughs> she ran repeatedly, yeah. repeatedly, repeatedly for the Greens, um, never hid her track record of Holocaust denial. She went on trial in Germany, and she's in prison there. Um, and the Greens have never really been held to account. There's never been a reckoning for the Greens with regard to this sort of stuff. Uh, I, you know, this would be a bigger issue if they had any hope of, of influencing <laughs> Parliament, you yeah. know. Okay. Uh, and it's, look, it's, it's, it's not untypical of, uh, of, it's not untypical of the far left yeah. to just be, have such an open tent that it ends up just having these big gusts of stupidity blow right through it. Yeah. Um, candidates that say things like that and are allowed to stand undermine the credibility of the leader ultimately. Yeah. Uh, the NDP's, but uh, as we'll discuss, the NDP's got a far bigger problem. The, you know, the Liberals uh, than, than the Greens do. The Liberals revoked uh, Hassan Gillette's candidacy um, in Quebec. Uh, he's still, I think, running as an independent. Yes. Uh, he had some lovely things to say. Uh, but there are a number of other candidates uh, that, uh, that, including liberals, that are, are controversial. Uh, Samir Zuberi, yes. uh, who's uh, in Pierrefonds d'Allard, uh, this fellow was evidently involved in harassing Jewish students and pro-Israel students at Concordia University earlier in the early 2000s. He made at one point a remark that made it seem like he was doubting that Osama bin Laden was responsible for 9-11. He tried to walk that back. He's, you know, worked with all faith communities. He's uh, responds to the rise of far-right extremism because they never recognize extremism from the left. He trots out his token Jew as, uh, as uh, proof that uh, he's uh, an even-handed fellow when it comes to to these matters, uh, it's a lesbian reform rabbi he trots out. <laughs> so she represents perhaps 15% of, of the views of Canadian Jews, uh, which are by and large much more conservative and orthodox and traditional. Um, most notably in the one story, and I think it was a McLean story that I found on this guy, uh, he was previously associated with the Council on American Islamic Relations Canada, now known as the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Why yeah. didn't they call it Care Canada? Yeah. Oh, because then people would know what it was, affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Yep. So here's an example of a guy who's being allowed, the Zuberi who's being allowed to stand. Now, the NDP, they have damn near a caucus of anti-Semites, yep. uh, both incumbents and candidates running. Uh, Miranda Gallo uh, is a, a candidate in Saint Laurent. In 2016, B'nai uh, acquired video of her in 2016, putting a boycott label of some sort, a BDS label of some sort, uh, onto uh, Israeli products on a, uh, in a store. Uh, B'nai B'rith has, as I understand it, not gotten a response with regards to uh, whether any action will be taken by uh, Jagmeet Singh. Um, uh, defacing a product like that is a criminal code offense. It's been going on a lot in Toronto in the last while. Uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry. I'm seeing now the party said Gallo's made aware of their of their two-state policy, and she supports it. But you can't support a two-state 
solution and be def criminally defacing Israeli products. Um, she's not the only one in running in Montreal for the NDP. It's got some kind of history. Uh, Nima Sharouf and Laurier Saint-Marie is a member of the Quebec Solidaire Party, Solidaire Party, which is officially endorsed BDS. Her husband was a uh, demonstrated outside a, a store selling Israeli footwear in 2010. Right. I remember. He's, I think, also, also part of... Yeah, and I didn't remember that. I uh, did. Because <laughs> it's like, that's pretty... That's really small potatoes protesting shoes. Like, what What was behind that? And I, I only came across this yesterday in researching for, for our appearance today. Uh, so she's well-tied. This is a candidate, Sharouf, well-tied to uh, BDS. Um uh, Zahia uh, El Masri, who's uh, uh, nominated in Ahuntsic, Cartierville. Uh, she's been a high-profile BDS activist for uh, over 12 years, uh, appeared at a conference as, uh, alongside Omar Barghouti, one of the founders of BDS. She took part in Israeli Apartheid Week at the University of Concordia. So we see that she's a real friend of the Jewish people and of, his, uh, and of uh, Canada's relationship with Israel. Uh, there's an incumbent in Rosemont Le Petit Patri, Alexander Boulderice, who's uh, the deputy leader for Jagmeet Singh. He's a, uh, uh, was a former QP member, uh, so we already know which way he's going to be leaning when the wind blows. Mm -hmm. uh, he asked the House of Commons uh, when there was a, a revamping of the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement uh, why the government rejected an NDP amendment to label products from the disputed territories. He's, again, a BDS. Oh, just put a gold star on them. Just put well, a yellow star on love, They'd love that. They, they would. would to do that. <laughs> yep. That would make it easy for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, MP from Sherbrooke, uh, Pierre-Luc Dussault, who's the revenue critic, he's the one that introduced the motion or introduced the petition to have CRA investigate the Jewish National Fund. Again, the favorite topic of our friends in Antifa, uh, independent Jewish voices, and all those other self-hating Jewish Marxists uh, that uh, have not learned the lessons of history. But, um, you know, as I discussed in my notes and showed you, you know, none of this activity in terms of the NDP and candidates uh, who caused legitimate concern among the Jewish community, Jewish citizens, Jewish voters, none of the surprise in a party led by Jagmeet Singh, because while Justin Trudeau has a, a blind spot when it comes to blackface, Jagmeet Singh has a blind spot to anti-Semites. Yep. He just doesn't see it. Look at Nikki Ashton. This isn't just like a low-level problem with the NDP. Nikki Ashton speaks at Nakba Day. Um, we know that Nakba, that, that's the catastrophe. It, it's, you know, it's the, uh, how the BDS activists describe the creation of the State of Israel, a place but where... It, where it, Jews I, could always wow. be safe. They describe it as the catastrophe. And that's how Nikki Ashton refers to it. And she was very nearly the leader of that party. Yeah, and she, and uh, uh, Nikki Ashton should, uh, you know, she, she should insert herself into the Nakba Day March in Toronto next year. Yeah. Uh, so that she can be seen with exactly the kinds of uh, people that, that are affiliated with it. So she can stand there and hear the kinds of things that come out of their mouths about Jews, about Israel, about, uh, the, about the, the uh, right of the Jewish people to a homeland, uh, this rewriting of history, uh, the, trying to eliminate the, the notion there's been a continuing presence of the Jewish people, of the descendants of Abraham for 3,000 years. Nikki Ashton should go to Nakba Day so that she can be made to defend it directly, not saying, well, that's just what you say. That, well, I saw the video, but I wasn't. 
go. They should all go. Yep. They should all go and be seen for what they are when they participate in that. And, you know, at the same time, they should be asked, what about the 800,000 Jews that were forced from their homes in the Arab countries and given nothing and have never received any reparations? whether it's from Yemen, whether it's from Syria, whether it's from uh, Morocco, from the, the African subcontinent, they never want to address that uh, whatsoever. Now, with regards to Jagmeet Singh and his blind spot anti-Semites, uh, there's an activist out of Toronto who uh, on his Facebook put up a picture of him uh, posing with a banner to save Yemeni children, uh, which I'm sure he really cares about, with the Jagmeet Singh. Uh, and this character is uh, uh, Faraz, is his uh, colloquial name, I guess, uh, Husseini Al-Najim. And he's invented a group called Canadian Defenders for Human Rights, CD4HR on Facebook. Uh, yeah, and your squint is quite accurate because it's, <laughs> much, the, it's much the opposite. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a pretty Orwellian-sounding name. I bet you it stands for everything opposite. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, so Jagmeet Singh would think that this is fabulous because it has the phrase human rights in it. Uh, this fellow has taken video in the last couple of months uh, outside Jewish synagogues, you know, like casing locations in effect. There's a, a Muslim, and I don't know if Rebel covered this, I, I Rebel, uh, Rebel Media covered this. There's a woman in Toronto who, who I thought was Jewish. It turns out that she's a lapsed Muslim who's very pro-Israel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, Solomon. Yeah, and this guy, with his kid with him, he spots her, and I don't know if he was waiting for her in whatever the supermarket is in the neighborhood. He follows her in. She's trying to get a card. She's got her own kid who's like three or four, and he's following her and berating her, taping this about uh, about being a bad Muslim and supporting, so, you know, supporting baby killers or whatever he was saying. So he's there have been a number of police reports made about his activities and about his language uh, in – uh, when this picture appeared uh, on his Facebook, uh, our publisher, the J.ca, Ron East, contacted the NDP and sent uh, a, an email with regards to this, an inquiry, to Jagmeet Singh. It was on September 7th. Still no response, pointing out that he's casing that this fellow that you're pictured with, that your association is creating a wave of shock and concern within the Jewish community. Uh, he's engaged in provocative actions, casing Jewish properties in North York, intimidating, among others, a Muslim woman who's pro-Israel. Uh, many of these incidents have been reported to police. Uh, and Jagmeet Singh was asked by Ron East to denounce uh, Mr. Al-Najim and the vile anti-Semitism he stands for and ensure anti-Semitism doesn't have a home within the NDP party. No answer from Jagmeet Singh. Now, it's just a few days ago that... Uh, uh, Firaz, who's prone to all sorts of uh, interesting essays mm -hmm. on Facebook, as well as videos. Uh, he goes off on Zionists, uh, specializing accusations, divert people or the conversation from their oppression occupation towards Palestine and Palestinians. We'll talk about how great that occupation is working out in a minute. We swing the Israeli elections. Yeah. But at the end of his, of his diatribe, he says, for those activists and organizations that aren't fully on board, and ready for major escalations and sacrifices. We'd like to say we wish you good luck, but please don't disturb our work or try to defame it because you are not ready for real confrontations. And that's the kind of guy that um, Jagmeet Singh will not denounce and uh, takes photographs with. That sounds like violent rhetoric, or at least it would be described as violent rhetoric if a conservative had said it. That's for darn sure. Now, 
No, uh, no conservative that I know of in this country would say it. Well, of course, of course. Now, you did mention the Israeli elections. Um, I'm a follower of Israeli politics. I do my very best, but they have proportional representation. And so it is an absolute zoo trying to figure out who actually won an election. Uh, and it takes weeks to figure it out. Can you give us a Coles Notes version of what the heck is happening in Israel right now? All I, all I really understand <laughs> is the Coles Notes version. The, <laughs> the parliamentary system is falling apart. Uh, you have to have a certain threshold of votes or percentage to be then able to get a seat in the Knesset. And then that's based not on candidates running in ridings or wards or whatever. It's based on a list. So the parties put out a list of their top, say, 50 candidates, and the major parties, uh, Likud, Likud and Blue and White, they figure that you know the top 35-ish have a chance of becoming an MK, a member of the Knesset. Yeah. And so this system, it, it's become very dysfunctional because of the level of horse trading that's needed yeah. to cobble together a coalition with these other minority parties. Uh, now, um, this also creates a weakness because as part of that horse trading, um, if you don't have anybody high enough on your list from, say, a certain region or a, a certain, uh, you know, uh, community, I mean, it's very unlikely because I, I don't know the names of small communities or smaller neighbors would be an example. But let's say you don't have anybody on your list from uh, Haifa, okay? Uh, 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 and another party does. You need to have some sort of deal where government's got representation in Haifa. So you're going to make a deal with the party whose number four candidate is from Haifa. So you're cutting deals not only based on politics, but you're also cutting them on the basis of making sure that you've got regional representation in your government. I know, it's nuts. So complicated. So and, a, a non, unnecessarily so. doesn't have to be that way. Just run ridings. Which, for whatever reason, and I do, I, I've never studied it, so I don't know why that... I mean, I could see at the beginning it wasn't highly populated, so you right. go on the basis of lists. But at some point, that it just seems to me this is, it's collapsing under its own weight as as court cases do. So what happened is, the the majority of the voters are are, are Jewish, but there is so much infighting now about these coalitions that form to prop up governments and. The left, the labor is not immune. They ruled Israel for the first about 30 years, from Ben-Gurion on, until, I guess, Menachem Begin. Um, the horse trading that Netanyahu and other prime ministers, in this case Netanyahu, have done with the ultra-religious parties, mm -hmm. where they say, yes, we'll bring our six seats to give you a majority, you know, push you over the line. But we want the Ministry of Health, or we want the Ministry of, uh, of Finance, or they get key ministries where the policy is then dictated, literally dictated by those narrow religious interests. So secular, the, 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 the secular Jewish population in Israel has grown to a point where they don't agree that there should be no public transit, maybe not through certain neighborhoods, but what do you mean you can't take a bus right. on, on Saturday? I did not realize till this week. Let's say, let's say, uh, one of the rebel 
correspondence is in Israel and ends up in the hospital, gets hit in the head with a rock. And he's there on a Shabbos. And we go. We cannot buy food in the hospital. The vending machines are turned off. What kind of a... Now, it's not my country. I don't like criticizing other countries, but, like, that's nuts. The hospital is a public service uh, that isn't denominational. This isn't where the schools are closed because they're run by the religious orthodox or whatever. So it's no wonder Israelis are fed up. You can't go visit your relatives in the hospital and bring them a tuna sandwich or a can of Dr. Pepper. Like, that's, that's bizarre. And so now what, what is happening in these elections where nobody's gaining a clear edge is the resistance, as it were, between the secular Jewish interests that want the country to be more, as it were, liberal, less under the thumb of, the, of, of what are, you know, in their minds, border on Jewish mullahs, right? How is this very different from Iran or Turkey, where Erdogan forms partnerships and suddenly becomes more and more Muslim in order to maintain power? Well, it's hit a breaking point in Israeli society. And this is what, what's happened, is the Jewish vote is so polarized, the Arab list, meanwhile, um, that was a coalition of all these little Arab parties, and I don't know what all their little subtexts are or aren't, but some of them are, you know, clearly, uh, you know, not exactly friends of a Jewish state, but they voted as a block, coordinated things, and they end up with um, not exactly a balance of power, but with a lot of influence, because the Jewish parties aren't collectively going to, uh, you know, aren't, aren't, um, as interested in forming a unity government as perhaps everybody wishes they were. So one thing that's come out that's been disappointing for Ron and myself is there are a number of people, uh, people that follow the J.ca and 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 uh, people that are influential in the Canadian Jewish uh, communities, activists, that are talking about the Arab list having influence as, um, you know, a biblical, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, like a prophecy? Uh, well, I think I've heard that too, actually, but I, I haven't caught on how. But that it's that it's a, a real uh, foreboding of bad times for uh, mm. for the Jewish people, and I don't think that's that's not right, and that's not fair. This is proof that the apartheid state is a failure. This is proof of the success of the Israeli democracy. In that, the uh, Arab list has, I think, they're in position for 12 seats. That, and they are in a position to have a say in terms of the composition of the government. Yeah, that's the, the worst. Word matters. If they're trying to apartheid everybody, they're sure doing it wrong. The worst. This is the worst <laughs> apartheid regime. I mean, they, they flunked. They flunked yeah. the test with this election. Now, Again, with people that are concerned that, that this is bad, well, then I'll tell you what, it's up to Israelis to, if, if you're worried about a Muslim population bomb in Israel, then there's, uh, there's one way to counter it. And that is to go forth and multiply, which is what we were commanded to do. And I suppose also, and, and, you know, for Jews in the diaspora, are gonna have to evaluate if they can move to Israel and how economically they can sustain themselves, uh, et cetera. Um, but I don't see this uh, as, and I'm not a, I'm not by any stretch hugely negative on Netanyahu. I'm not hugely negative on Benny Gantz either. I, I don't care a lot. This could have all been avoided if Lieberman's demands 
uh, that the Haredim, that the ultra-Orthodox be drafted, that they have to serve in the, in the military, if that had been agreed to, which would have fractured Netanyahu's um, uh, coalition, mm -hmm. but might have brought, would have brought other support, a lot of this wouldn't have happened. So now Lieberman, you know, he wants that, he wants this, he wants transit on Shabbos. Uh, Netanyahu, I think, could have avoided this by being more of a centrist and relying less on the ultra-religious for his base of support. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, um, the you know the the Arab vote was sixty percent. These uh, the majority of them are committed to life in Israel under the current system. Yeah. they are not voting to overthrow no the democracy. I think a lot of people in the Jewish community misunderstand. I think I saw a survey was at seventy one percent of of Arabs in Israel like being Israeli and want to, want it to stay that way. It's up to the Jews in Israel to ensure, along with the, the Christian communities, to ensure that that environment is maintained so that everybody who's in Israel uh, and values democracy and values a, a society where gays aren't thrown off of the tops of buildings, where people all aren't hauled off and executed for being collaborators. Yep. Uh, I think it's up to everybody that values that to grow that tent, and uh, and uh, uh, I I don't see this as disastrous. I think it would be disastrous if no government can last out of this. Because another election in five months, um, it's going to make the government itself and the country itself increasingly dysfunctional. And without a, a voice, one voice, whether it's Netanyahu's or Benny Gantz or whoever on the world stage, that is uh, something that concerns uh, all Jews in North America certainly that uh, Israel sort out its political issues. Has the, the era of the list, of the party list, outlived its usefulness? Um, as an impartial observer, I think it's on its last legs. What Israelis themselves are gonna decide, I don't know. But they can't keep going with a system where you're trying to horse trade regional representation and religious representation into a party, into a coalition government to cobble something together just to maintain power because it's it's going to start eating at the confidence Israelis have in their own in their own society and uh, it's um, in that regard it's a difficult time I'm sure it'll it, it can be sorted out but some people may have to come off their pedestals a little bit now from the Israeli election back to the Canadian election for a second sure. um, where about a week out of the blackface scandal and it doesn't seem to be going away what is your prediction for the formation of the canadian government right now i'm sure things will change and and uh we'll see some shift in support as i'm sure other scandals will break i'm not sure from which parties and when but i'm sure there's more um what do you what do you think uh minority majority and whom by whom formed by whom i don't see a majority government I don't see a majority government as being likely, although I understand there's been quite a shift in Ontario, which would bring a conservative majority. I don't see that as being the most likely scenario. Jagmeet Singh, I think, really shot himself in the foot by uh, saying that he would nonetheless prop up a liberal minority government between SNC-Lavalin um, and uh, the uh, black, the, the you know, the, the ability, the, the circumstances now where Trudeau's you know, you know, basic qualifications, his personality, are now being called into question. I think Jagmeet Singh shot himself in the foot by by 
I mean, worst negotiator on earth to give that card away. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see the Green Party going beyond three or four seats, but I think more importantly, I don't see the Liberals going beyond five seats in Western Canada. And what you mentioned earlier about this ruining the Liberal brand, that Laurentian gang, you know, they can all whoop it up at the Chateau Laurier and, and you know, their, their own little circle jerk parties. But they are abandoning... Um, abandoning the the people that identify as liberals in western canada but with their behavior and with their with their smarmy attitude yeah. uh there are people who traditionally in the west have vacillated between liberal and conservative depending on how you know red tory you know they are etc uh but if they go down to five seats in western canada in no way is that a legitimate government, even if they form a majority by somehow, you know, doing well in, in the East? If anything, it is it will fuel uh, Western separation. Yeah. And I don't say that lightly, no. uh, but it's been increasingly apparent to me the last the last year, year and a half in particular, but certainly the last six months that this is something that should not be dismissed by the Eastern elite. Uh, so. I think it's possible that there will be a conservative government. I think if any more blackface pictures come out or video, anything else like that, I think is there's no way, if that comes out, there's no way whatever standing the liberals have in the polls that day, they aren't going up from that day yeah. if there's more of this stuff. Uh, and I am certain that there's other things that are embarrassing to the prime minister that are a reflection on poor or immature judgment that are yet to be divulged uh, that can come out in this uh, campaign. I think the most likely scenario is a minority conservative government. I can't see how the um, opposition parties, you know, their alternative would be to say, yeah, you know, that trying to rig a criminal prosecution of a of a business that is riding, yeah, it's not really that big of a deal. Yeah. Because I think that would really burst their balloon, uh, their credibility, in a lot of places if they propped up a Trudeau minority government. Uh, yeah. I, I I don't see, um, again, uh, the, the, the other question is heading into the French debates, is how badly is Maxime Bernier going to take this blackface club and beat on Justin Trudeau with it? Because that, I'm not an expert, but it seems to me that that could move. I'm sure there are people go back that go between the BQ, uh, for instance, and the Liberals that are you know Quebec-centric voters, and it could be that Bernier is in a position where you know I, you know I may have done stupid things, but I never did that. He could say that quite legitimately. Yeah, yeah. and that might affect the election because it's going to um, influence voters in Quebec to second guess the Trudeau dynasty. Yes. I don't think that English media has really looked at that and wondered how does this improve Bernier's fortunes, the People's Party fortunes in Quebec? Yes. Uh, and it, it may not add seats, but if it moves votes, the next thing you know, you could have conservatives, or I suppose BQ members that slide through, takes away from the liberal uh, ledger. Um, uh, Right now, I would see a conservative minority as the most likely outcome, and especially if there's any more damage control days required for Justin Trudeau. Um, it's to me, it's very uphill. 
because all the opposition parties hammer him on credibility. They hammer him on honesty. They hammer him on broken promises. This isn't just the conservatives doing it. This, the yeah. message that's getting the voters is from all the parties is the government is rotten, that it stinks, and we all know what you have to do with the head of the fish. Right. Um, lastly, since yes. you've been extremely generous with your time, um, where do people find you, Marty? How do they support your work? How do they support your secular work and your work at the J.ca? The J.ca is uh, located online. Uh, concurrent with this interview, we have published a guide, in particular for Jewish voters, but there's uh, helpful information for all voters about elections, uh, li links to Elections Canada uh, websites. You can find where your polling place is, advanced polling. Uh, this year for the Jewish community, uh, the one of the days of the advanced polls falls on Sukkot, which is a holy day, and also falls mm -hmm. on the election day itself, falls on the eighth day of Sukkot, Shemini uh, Atzeret. Uh, and so Jewish voters are, religious Jewish voters, of which there's a sizable number, certainly Toronto and Montreal, less so in Winnipeg and Vancouver and Calgary, they're going to have to vote in advance. I'm not a big fan of advanced voting by and large, uh, but we provided a story that uh, demonstrates the links, the qualifications to vote uh, as uh, a, a public service, so to speak. But those who are not Jewish, those links are, you know, again, for polling places and the, the dates. Uh, so you can go to the j.ca and there's uh, uh, links on our website uh, 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 tabs uh, with regards to sponsorship, with regards to advertising. Uh, for me personally, uh, the great Canadian talk show uh, is my news blog, tgcts.com online. Still banned by Facebook for reasons unknown, but the workaround is working so far uh, so good. I had, um, I was very pleased with the d level of support uh, that I got. Uh, uh, and some, a couple of whom did reference my appearances here on the, on the gun show, and I appreciate it. I'm hoping that the more people will see the value in having independent Manitoba coverage of the federal election and of the candidates. And I'll carry on through this. Uh, and uh, I don't know if, I don't know how many more elections I've got in me, uh, in, the, in my guise as a, as a reporter and commentator, but I'm proud of the work that I did in the Manitoba yes. election. I can tell you that Trudeau story, uh, that, about day one of damage control, um, there are a lot of very recognizable, influential, high-level people uh, from uh, the world of diplomacy, from the world of politics, the world of media, that... Um, that liked seeing a story from somebody on the ground who isn't part of the Ottawa press corps, doesn't live in that bubble. I mentioned a few things that I thought were, you know, he walked around mentioned, actually discussing whether his father knew about his costumed antics. Uh, nobody had the balls to ask him whether his mother knew about this or when. Yeah. He did not mention his wife, and I would have thought that in an apology about how you've embarrassed uh, your, yourself and your party, and I talked about it with my kids, you would have thought he would have mentioned his wife, and he didn't, which I thought was very significant. I'm just saying, it yeah. seems like I'm the only commentator person in attendance that noticed yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but the response was probably my most widely circulated story uh, maybe in in by certain metrics of all time. Certainly, I reached an audience that's that was Canada wide and worldwide, and uh, people found value in in the perspectives I brought of a Jewish guy from the North End. And as I as I said, you know, uh, the the course of our lives brought uh, Justin Trudeau and I together in the same place at the same time. <laughs> but he had some explaining to do, and I had a clean bill of health. <laughs> so that's what the preamble was to that. 
Oh, that's great, Marty. Marty, uh, I want to thank you for being extremely generous with your time and your uh, your unique on the ground perspective from Winnipeg. Hopefully, we can catch up with you in a couple of weeks, sometime after the election, and. Uh, sure. And we'll maybe discuss. we can get him. Maybe we can get him before the election if something uh, oddball happens sure. again. I, I know the rebel media is going to be having some people come through here uh, during the course of the campaign, and I look forward to a meeting with whoever uh, whoever comes by to visit and uh, and seeing uh, seeing just what kind of hard questions can be asked that politicians start to squirm when uh, when they hear them and start looking for an exit. Uh, <laughs> I, I I've seen some really good work. Uh, on the rebel during this campaign, some excellent work uh, oh, you. by yourself. By by, and I don't want to leave anybody out. Menzies has been doing great. Oh, great. Uh, Ken is uh, Ken is certainly in a groove, and it's important that that these kinds of outlets, the ones that don't get media accreditation, mm -hmm. the ones that are treated like they aren't really journalists. We know we know what journalism is nowadays, and for those that don't want to tow a party line, that don't want to tow. Um, you know, the don't come at everything swinging, you know, like Carl Yastrzemski from the left. There's got to be something for the rest of, for the rest of the public. And that's the role that we fill in uh, the, the election coverage uh, coming from Rebel from Rebel TV has been uh, literally it's a highlight every day to see what it what is covered, what is brought up, what is unearthed. And uh, I do my part in a similar vein here out of Winnipeg. And uh, I look forward to, to hearing from your audience, if there, anybody has any story tips or any issues, by all means, get a hold of me. Uh, for right now, I'm going to stay the course in political reporting and and such things. And uh, as often as as often as you'll have me on, I'll be here to uh, to do what I can to enlighten everybody about what goes on here in the uh, in Manitoba stand, as we used to call it under the NDP. But, but as <laughs> as Alistair has said frequently, uh, blue skies uh, are blue skies every day here in Manitoba, and it's uh, it's a much much different place now than it was under the Salinger regime. And uh, we'll see what federal regime takes hold here in a few weeks' time. Thanks, Marty. Have a great day. And again, thanks for your generosity with your time. Thank you, Sheila. is going to happen in the remaining few weeks of this election campaign. There are likely even more scandals about to be revealed about Justin Trudeau. But that won't necessarily mean the end of Justin Trudeau. That will just mean that the Liberal-approved media is going to come at the Conservative Party even harder to deflect away from their boy prince's self-inflicted problems. You see, for the media, it's just self-preservation. People just aren't buying the garbage they're selling anymore. So they have to get that bailout from Justin Trudeau. So they have to get Justin Trudeau reelected at all costs, even if it costs Canadian unity. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.